Well, hi, everybody. My name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in New York. And um, really, it's awesome to see so many newcomers or people who are new to this meeting. Um, I really encourage you to please utilize the chat box. It's like the, you know, it's that book that you, we would pass around at those face-to-face -face meetings. And, um, you know, if you're new, if you're looking for help, if you're looking for support, if you need a sponsor or you are a sponsor, um, use the chat box. You can put your name and number um, and that, you know, that'll help you. That might help you enable you to get contact with us. So um, since there are a lot of new people, you know, before I jump into step 12, um, I usually, um, every now and then I'll share my photos again. So if you've seen them 800 times, you know, you'll see them 801 more <laughs> time, but I'll try to go through them quick because this is, you know, I want to make sure that I get to the topic, but, you know, oftentimes, um, people, people need somebody to qualify. They need to kind of know that they're in the right spot, that the person speaking isn't just, um, you know, just someone who has no experience with the disease of compulsive overeating. And while um, not everybody's symptoms manifest themselves in the same way, um, you know, I'm, a for I'm fortunate. I think I'm very fortunate because mine um, was morbid obesity. And so why I say that's fortunate is that I'm no longer living in morbid obesity and the transformation is pretty visible and so sometimes people who are new find that really helpful. It kind of, it's a signal to tell them that um, this thing works, right? That this is a program that works. And, um, and I also say that this is a program for people who require a miracle. And I'm lucky because I have a visible demonstration of what it looks like to have a miracle, right? This, this to me is pretty miraculous. People don't usually lose this kind of weight and keep it off for, for the amount of years that I have. Um, you know, so I'll just, I'll kind of buzz through them quick. You know, um, this is me with my daughter and my husband at different, different points. Um, you know, I, um, I always think to this picture in the red, like I was having a party in my house that day. I could barely brush my hair. Like I just couldn't get myself together. Um, and next to it, I was on a vacation um, and I was having a great time. Um, these were both happy occasions and I ruined them both by eating compulsively or drinking, right? One always led to the other. And here I am with my sister and my sister-in-law's drink in hand. I know that I had food probably in my pocket. I'm pretty sure I ate in the bathroom that day because there was never enough food that I could eat publicly. Um, and I always showed up at every one of these events, like a fake smile on my face, a lot of resentment, a lot of resentment, um, real or imagined, anything that anyone ever did. I showed up with that, like a list of things in my mind that people did. Um, and uh, this is a more recent picture, you know, saying my sister, my sister-in-law is my mother, um, resentment gone, right? Um, and this was me when my son was a baby. I could, uh, he's 16 now. You know, what I remember about this time was I could barely get my arms around him. And, um, and yet I couldn't keep up with him either. And that was a really hard spot to be in when you have 
a baby that was so active um, and, uh, and that you loved and wanted him. And I could not participate in parenting him the way that I wanted to. Um, and here's two side-by-sides, like so that you could say this really is miraculous. Um, you know, this is him as a baby. Um, and this is him when he was graduating or not even graduating, he was getting some sort of an award for middle school. And, um, you know, and there's us with them. Um, these are also side-by-sides. What I love about this picture in the gray is that although I was still overweight, I still had weight to lose, I was actually recovered at that point. And part of my own um, experience with this disease is it didn't just manifest itself in um, obesity, it manifested itself in quick fixes and weight loss schemes. And I was always on crash diets, but in this picture, I wasn't. And I was recovered. And the reason I know I was recovered is that smile is genuine. And um, there was a light in my eye. And I remember at that event, I really did not have those resentments that against my family were gone. And I remember like, holy smokes, I really love these people. When did, when did that happen, right? Um, and this is me, you know, I, I, every one of those dresses fits me. I go in the closet, I take them out and I wear them again and again. And, um, you know, here's me in later years wearing one of those dresses again and again. Um, these are a couple of more family photos side by sides. Um, and, uh, you know, I was always under the, um, the master food. Food was my master. It told me what I like to do. And, you know, and here I'm eating out in a restaurant with my husband because that's what I thought I like to do. And it turns out when food's not my master, I actually really prefer music festivals and dancing and doing other things besides just sitting in restaurants. Um, this is at the only birthday party. These are me and some of my wonderful friends in this program. Um, I didn't. I don't have a picture of everybody, but I have some. This is a, a dear sponsee and friend of mine. Um, and um, and here's some others. You know, I could probably. I got to go through my pictures. I could add so many more of so many people that I know and love in this program. Um, so that's. Um, those are my pictures. And the reason I like to show them is usually after I show them, what happens is, and I always say the same thing, um, is people tend to lean in a little closer because they 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 want to hear the directions. It's that's the visible. They're like, okay, what did you what did you do? It must have worked, you know, and um, and to sort of further qualify is I've been I've been entirely abstinent. Um It'll be 10 years. I can't even believe that 10 years of living this, you know, this way of life, this recovered way of life. Um, I had been in and out of OA before this point, um, but 10 years ago was truly when I just, um, I threw myself, really, I say I threw myself at the mercy of a miracle. And that's, and that's what happened. Um, and I began to take directions um, entirely, completely, um, and I recovered. And so, and the wonderful thing is, is that I am not unique. 
this thing that happened to me is available for every single person. Everybody who wants it and needs it and is willing to do it, right? God is not, I don't believe that God reserved miracles for a select few. And, and you know, it's not even based on worthiness, not even based on worthiness. There's nothing that made me more worthy than anybody else. I was just willing, entirely willing. Um, so let's talk about step 12, right? So now this is like the, right? That was the beginning stuff. And now let's, let's zero in on the end. So step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics, us compulsive overeaters, and to practice these principles in all our affairs. So there's three parts to this step. Um, one is the spiritual awakening. Two is the carrying of the message to other addicts. And three is the practicing these principles in all our affairs. And for tonight's you know, purpose, I'll probably get through one and a half, maybe. Maybe, maybe I'll get to like two. Um, oh, we'll see, you know. So, Page 106 asks the big question. This isn't again in the AA 12 and 12. What do you mean when you talk about a spiritual awakening? And the answer comes on the bottom of the page and it continues onto page 107. And, and here's what it is. It says, when a man or woman has a spiritual awakening, the most important meaning of it is that he has now become able to feel and believe that which he could not do before on his unaided strength and resources alone. He has been granted a gift which amounts to a new state of consciousness and being. He has been set on a path which tells him he's really going somewhere. That life is not a dead end, not something to be endured or mastered. In a very real sense, he has been transformed. You know, and it further goes on to say that he finds himself in possession of a degree of honesty, tolerance, unselfishness, peace of mind, and love of which he had thought himself quite incapable. So let's look at this. It's like really zone in and look at this. And this was page 107 in the AA 12 and 12. Um, so when someone asks, what does it mean to be recovered? So get asked that question, like what, what do you mean when you say recovered, right? Well, this is it. You can do things, you can feel things, even feeling hard things, by the way, even being able to handle feeling difficult things. And we believe things that we have never been able to do, feel, or believe on our own. You know, it says here that we have a new state of consciousness and being. And I'd say it's like we get woken up. I, I'm alive. I feel alive inside. We have direction. Our lives feel meaningful. And they begin to feel like we have a purpose. There's like a purposeful light that we start feeling. And 
we can become honest, tolerant, you know, and when I say tolerant, it's, it means not so sensitive and touchy. Like the things that used to get me all twisted. I'm generally, I don't feel as touchy as I used to. Or when I do feel touchy, right? Because remember, it's sort of like I can feel again. It passes quick. I don't stay in that state very long. I feel it. I have a skill set that tells me how to address it. I can bring it to God. And my sensitivity and my touchiness passes like, I'd say it passes like a storm cloud. And not the kind of clouds that we've been having here <laughs> in, the, in the States for a while where it just seems to rain constant. It's a cloud, it rains, it pours, it passes, right? Um, and, you know, we generally find ourselves concerned with others more than we are with ourselves. And this is described, I love it, as a free gift that we make ourselves ready to receive by practicing the 12 steps. You know, so it's not, I did something so great and that's why I got it. Yes, did I do the work? Of course. Yes, did I surrender? Of course. But you know, when 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 I speak about like that, I reached a point where I surrendered. I really didn't have a lot of choices left. I'll be honest with you. It's not such. It's not like I did something so noble by surrendering. It was basically I was going. I was either going to die, or I was going to do it. And what for myself, I'd say it was like I lived a long time in a hallway between two doors. One was a spiritual experience, right? And the other one was oblivion by the food. And my surrender happened when the, when the hallway in between the two doors disappeared. It just fell out from underneath me. So it, you know, it was either I was going to either surrender to the food or I was going to surrender to getting well. Um, and so what I've gotten in return is a gift. This is a gift, you know, um, and then it goes on, the chapter then gives us a quick description of the steps because um, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps. So what are the steps, right? Page 107, step one, showed us an amazing paradox. We found that we were totally unable to be rid of the alcohol obsession or the food obsession until we first admitted that we were powerless over it. Okay, that's step one. By the way, step one is a miserable step. It is not fun. When people say, I'm, I'm miserable, I'm like, I'm putting the food down, I can't put the food down and I'm so unhappy and, I'm, and my head hurts and I'm crying and I'm, I'm coming out of my skin and I, I don't know how to do this. Um, you know, welcome to step one. Step one is not fun not a fun step. But step two says, we saw that since we could not restore ourselves to sanity, some higher power must necessarily do so if we are to survive. So step two is this understanding that there is something bigger than me. I don't even have to understand it. I don't have to have a clear definition of it. 
I don't have to know what my higher power is. I just have to believe that there is something that has the ability to give me a miracle, right? Step one is the understanding that I require a miracle, that I'm in serious trouble. And step two is there is a miracle available, right? And step three, we turned our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. So step three is whatever that miracle is, whatever that higher power is, here, I'm yours. I'm on your team. I want what you want. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll go where you want me to go. I'm turning it all over. And that's step three. Step four, we commenced to search out the things in ourselves which had brought us to physical, moral, and spiritual bankruptcy. And I would say, so step, step four is, okay, if I really want to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him, what are the things that are in my way? What are the things that are keeping me from really turning it all over? What are the things that I keep holding on to, feeling like I'm entitled to? And sometimes the things that I felt like I was entitled to were horrible, right? It was my resentment. Yep, I'm entitled to be angry. It was my fear. Well, if you had the tragedies that happened to me happen to you, you'd be afraid too. I'm entitled to feel afraid, right? It was, mm, I did a lot of crappy things, but you know what? Um, I, 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 you know what? I, I was a victim. I was a victim of other people. And so I'm entitled to do those things, right? And I often find that that's my self-pity. My self-pity allows me, I would say, allows me, the more self-pity I have, the more I believe that I'm entitled to live in ways that are outside of what I know is right. But I feel like, well, you know what? I Things were so hard for me that I ought to be able to do that, right? And that's self-pity. And so step four sort of helps me identify all those things. Step five, inventory taken alone wouldn't be enough. We knew we would have to quit the deadly business of living alone with our conflicts. And um, to me, that becomes a very important set of directions that I take for the rest of my life. A solitary self-appraisal is insufficient. If I appraise my behaviors, if I appraise my defects all alone, I believe that I'm entitled to every single one of them, right? And so it's really important that other people are a part of that process. Um, step six, many of us balked because we did not wish to have all our defects of characters removed because we still loved some of them too much. Yet we knew we had to make a settlement with the fundamental principle of step six. So we decided that while we still had some flaws of character, we could not yet relinquish. We ought nevertheless to quit our stubborn, rebellious, hanging on to them. We said to ourselves, this I cannot do today, but perhaps I can stop crying out, no, never. 
So step six tells me, I believe that it's the work of my lifetime. Every time I have a 10 step to do, it's directly related to my step six. What is it that I'm struggling to be willing to let go of, right? Step six is not a one and done. It's a, it's a constant. It's here's the bullseye. I'm always trying to hit the target and I miss it a lot. I miss it a lot, but I, but I get the arrow and I keep shooting, right? I don't say, nope, never. And I think step six, you know, um, gets downplayed a lot because the big book only gives it a little short little part. But the AA 12 and 12 um, really spells it out very clear. A lot of us, myself included, I wasn't necessarily willing to have God remove all my defects of character. What I wanted him to remove was the consequences of my defects, right? Rather than the actual problems, right? And so step six is, mm, I, I actually have to have the whole thing removed, all of it. Um, and step seven, well, I can't remove it on my own. I can't remove it on my own human power. Just like I couldn't remove my obsession to eat compulsively, I couldn't remove my defects on my own. Um, so step seven, what do we do? We humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings as he could or would under the conditions. I don't demand it. I ask him, right? Step eight, we continued our house cleaning. We were in conflict, not just with ourselves, but with people and in the world. We had begun to make our peace. And so we listed the people we had harmed and became willing to set things right. Became willing. And again, this is, you know, we make those lists, but we know those of us that have been doing this a while, things resurface, things that I thought I took care of. Suddenly I get this realization, I got more work to do. And this is also like an ongoing endeavor. And step nine, we made direct amends to those concerned, right? We clean it up directly. And step 10, we begin to get a basis for daily living and then realized we were going to have to continue to take inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. So we're never done. It's a continuation. You know, we don't get rendered white as snow. That's what they say. We don't become perfect angels. We're not saints. We, have, we are willing to go along spiritual lines, right? So when these defects reemerge, when we mess up, we, you know, we do this over and over again. It's part of our daily living. And step 11, we saw that if a higher power had restored us to sanity and had enabled us to live with some peace of mind in a sorely troubled world, then such a higher power was worth knowing better by as direct contact as possible. I love that. So we're told here that it can't just be a sort of prayerful life. It can't sort of be a, uh, you know, a, a drive-by. 
but that if this higher power was capable of a miracle of healing, then this higher power is worth me knowing better. And I'm going to be exerting all sorts of effort, yes, in pursuing a relationship with God. That is a very important part of my life. That persistent use of meditation and prayer, we found did open the channel so that where there had been a trickle, there now was a river. Love that. And I noticed the word persistent, which means that I'm going to do this a lot. Um, you know, and, and what I have also found is that this God that I am told that I need to have direct contact as possible with longs to have a relationship with me too. And the more I do it, the more satisfying relationship I have. That's been my experience. And here is the perfect explanation of step 12. It's on page 109. From great numbers of such experiences, we could predict that the doubter who still claimed that he hadn't got a spiritual angle, who still considered his well-loved AA group, the higher power, would presently love God and call him by name. So at this point, the group is no longer our higher power. The group becomes an important piece of our spiritual practice, but the group itself is not God. The meeting is not God because what would happen if the meeting fell apart? What would happen if our beloved meetings no longer existed, right? In fact, I've heard someone say that Alcoholics Anonymous never got one alcoholic sober. Overeaters Anonymous never got one compulsive overeater abstinent. It was always God. It was always a higher power. What AA and OA have done is to help us have a set of directions to enable us to have a relationship with that power. But it is the power that got me abstinent and keeps me abstinent, right? Um, and I also think, you know, that at some point, it says, you know, it says here that we presently love God and call him by name. Well, this is something that I've experienced myself and I've witnessed it happening for others over and over. At some point, we stop over-explaining the details of our conception of God. It is okay. I might call it God and my conception is 100, you know, percent different from the way that you're perceiving it. And you may have your own unique perception of it, but I don't have to spend a lot of time in my OA meetings and in my, and this, explaining to anybody 
the specifics about my conception of God. I know what it is. It's here inside my heart. I don't have to explain to you, well, that's not really how I see God. This is how I see God. And it's okay. We're all free, right? To have our own unique relationship with God. Um, you know, and so we stop using placeholders. We stop using substitutes. And most of us just call the source of power God because it's easier, right? Um, we come to love God. However, however you conceive of it, it's a power that you love. And we long to live in ways in which we can please God, right? We long to live in ways that we can please this power that we're having a relationship with and we wanna feel closer to it. It's this thing inside where we start having a love affair, I'd say, with God, with the divine. Okay, so that's the first part of step 12. It's long, right? That, and you know, it's interesting, um, this morning on a meeting, there was a question asked, um, and uh, someone asked, I thought it was a great question. So I chimed in, I wanted to answer it. Someone asked, um, do you think there should be a certification program <laughs> for being a sponsor? The person, and I it was like, I know that he really, he was like sort of just setting the bait out, right? Well, maybe we would have a whole program where people would get certified to be sponsors and they would go through that program and then they'd be able to sponsor. And anybody, what do you think? Do you think that'd be a good idea? And um, and so I answered and said, actually, we do have that. It's called the 12 steps. That's the certification process. So in order to be a sponsor, you have to have gone through the 12 steps. You have to have a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. That's what it says. You have to go through the steps, have this spiritual awakening, this feeling that you feel like God is inside your heart, living in a way which is indeed miraculous, doing for you that which you could not do, which you've gotten through working the steps, and now you have the certification to be a sponsor right? It's the, it's the important part before you can carry the message. So let's look at the next part. And we're just going to touch on it a little bit, right? Carrying the message to other compulsive eaters or alcoholics. And page 109 says, even the newest of newcomers finds undreamed rewards as he tries to help his brother alcoholic. So we start getting well and we begin to care deeply about those that are still suffering. Even before progressing through the steps ourselves, we begin to get the benefits of 12 step work. If you're new in the program, you can do this through outreach calls and texts. And, and I've seen that same experience happening people get like a little bit of abstinence, a little bit of recovery. And all of a sudden they're thinking, you know, I really, I, I, I really, I was thinking about my neighbor 
who I'm pretty sure has this problem. I, what can I do to help them? Like, it's sort of, it, it's divine the way that it just happens. And, you know, I hear people like, oh my gosh, I heard that newcomer and they sound like they're in so much problem, so much trouble. I, I, I just felt drawn to call them. These things, I think, you know, that's the beautiful gift. We put the food down, we start working the steps and pretty quick, you know, some of our selfishness gets snuffed out as we start. So we can start right away. Page 110 says, it describes the ways that we can carry the message. One, listen at meetings, not just to receive, but to offer reassurance and support. And I think this is why it's so important to have your camera on at a Zoom meeting. I really do. You know, I, I really, I always encourage it. It's so that your presence is felt and seen. You know, I would say that um, when we share, when anybody shares and you see smiling faces and nodding heads, you're getting support. You're being supported. It tells the person speaking, it tells the other people at the meeting, you're not alone, right? And, and I further say, you know, if all of your meetings are Zoom meetings, which a lot of us do, and you're off camera folding laundry or off camera running errands, I don't want to shame anybody, but I'm going to tell you, you're actually not in a meeting. You're, you're watching the OHM. That's what you're doing. You're watching, you may as well be watching, you know, a special um, podcast program, a special Netflix program about addiction. I think there's a difference. I think, you know, um, my friend says, I have a really good friend. She says it all the time, come all the way in, sit all the way down. And that's the beauty of having your camera up. It really does. It's a way that you're, you're part, you're actually practicing part of the 12 step work because you're a participant at the meeting. The newcomer at the meeting has an important job. They're there too. We need you. We need you there. We need your smiling faces. We even need your cries. We even need to see you looking sad. You're offering others the immunity. That's the truth. And that, that might be all the 12 steps that you can do right now, but you're, you're adding something very important. You know, and I also would say that, um, you know, you wouldn't consider yourself at a meeting if you were in the hallway of a meeting with your ear against the door. You would not believe that you were at the meeting, right? So you open the door, you come in and you sit down. That's my little that's my little pitch. It helps us know that we're not alone. Um, you know, number two, we speak when it's our turn. You know, I, I encourage sponsees share when they're at a meeting. I know this is a workshop. This is a little bit different, but certainly um, you can utilize a chat box in this. You can, um, there are other meetings that you can go to as well that you really ought to be sharing. Um, ask questions. Questions are an important way of participating. Um, you might be shy or self-conscious, but if you speak honestly and with the intention of being useful, then we can be sure that God will give us the right words. That's what I think. I don't think you really have to worry about 
too much about not having the right words. If your motives are good, your words will be perfect. Um, you know, what I think is when you are sharing at a meeting, as much as possible, you know, you could be hopeful, positive in your words. The meeting is not always where you, you know, where you just come and kind of vomit all over the group, right? Rattling off your lists of resentments and your list of problems. Sometimes, you know, there's a spot for that too. Um, but it's good to come with solutions and with questions. Um, and I love that there are meetings that I attend um, where we have opportunity for, for fellowship, for people to ask their questions. I think that's a very important spot for newcomers to come and others to ask their questions and to answer one another's questions. You know, um, there are some meetings that, you know, you have to have some abstinence requirement to perhaps be leading, but there are always services that you can do and that's an awesome part of the 12 step work as well. Number three, we can be the ones to take on the unspectacular but important tasks that make good 12-step work possible. Perhaps arranging for the coffee after the meetings. I know that was popular in those face-to-face -face meetings where so many skeptical, suspicious newcomers have found confidence and comfort in the laughter and in the talk. And this is the 12-step work in the very best sense of the word. And it, you know, it makes me think of the people who post a lot in the chat box. Those posts are helpful. Posting on group me's helpful. Those are the ways that, you know, that modern times we practice 12-step work. Um, you know, who think about the people, you know, I, I have a lot of friends in program who um, make a point to jot down the newcomers' names when they come on meetings. You know, if you're new, please put your name in the chat box so that others can reach out to you. And they, and they make a point of welcoming those newcomers. They follow up with phone calls. They send them little private messages. Um, and they offer friendship and fellowship. And that, that's part of 12-step work as well. Making yourself approachable is 12-step work. That is an important part of 12-step work. Um, so at here, I know we have like about 15 minutes left, a little bit less. And um, I'm going to, let's see. You know what, I'll read one other little part and then I'll stop the recording and we can open up for questions. Page 111 says, it highlights some difficulties and growing pains we encounter in our 12 step work. One, we may set our hearts on getting a particular person sobered up. And after doing all we can for months, we see him relapse perhaps. This will happen in succession of cases and we may be deeply discouraged as to our ability to carry the AA message. And I think anyone and everyone who has ever sponsored, me included, has had and still has this difficulty. It's heartbreaking because we grow to love our fellows and our sponsees and they relapse and they walk away from the program, right? But what about the ones that return, right? 
let's think about the ones that return. Um, you know, and I would say that when people struggle and they leave the program or they struggle and they lose their abstinence and we start feeling defeated, you know, because we believed that we were supposed to help that person stay abstinent, stay sober to up. I think we're forgetting that God's in charge. And that is not our job, right? I don't know what God has in store for different people, you know? Um, and I know for myself, I can't get, I can't get discouraged. I have to offer friendship and fellowship whenever they come back with no judgment, no lecture, no moralizing, but my hand down in friendship. And what I'd say is, you know, what are we, what are we told to leave the porch light on and the welcome mat out? That's it. Porch light on, welcome mat out. And what I, you know, if you, if you know of anybody who you ever worked with or you were, or you were close with in program and they went back out and they disappeared and you haven't heard from them, those are great people to reach back out to every now and then. We can't hunt them down, right? We're, we're actually told not to. We have to kind of let them go. But every now and then, you know, you circle back around, you send them a loving text. And by the way, anybody can do that. Think about the people, if you're, if you're actively participating in meetings and you think about people who used to share all the time and you're like, hmm, I haven't heard that person share in a really long time. I wonder what happened to them. Look their number up. Tell them that you're thinking about them. You never know, that could be, that could be your 12 step work. You could, you could be just the right person coming to them just at just the right time, right? Um, so at that, at this point, I'm gonna put a, I'm gonna put a mark here. Um, and I will turn off the recording and